It's my joy again to just say another welcome. Uh, it is good to be with you and uh, to welcome as, a, as well those of you who are tuning in via the live stream. Um, I'm sure you saw the email, those of you who are part of the church, but just wanted to briefly mention that Jeremy and I have been recording a podcast that we thought, how can we um, just sort of drip feed help and encouragement to you as a church family during this season, and maybe we are a little late to this party. Everyone else seemed to start one a year ago, but we decided to just launch ours a couple of weeks ago. But if you search for Converse Christianity, um, there's a few episodes up there, and the aim of it is just for us to kind of um, delve into particular themes and discuss what is it that makes the Christian life so distinctive and so different um, and so countercultural in comparison with our context, we're living in the secular age in which the kind of what we're seen as the shackles of religion have being sort of cast off, and people kind of perceive this as a, a great freedom that we're now in a godless age. But of course, um, we look at it in many ways the other way around, and we're asking, well, if the invitation is to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, to be his follower, what does it look like in practical terms? What does it look like to be radically different. And so that's the theme of the podcast. I want to encourage you to have a look and, and, and have a listen. We'd love to hear any feedback or any questions you guys want us to um, discuss or look at together. We'll do that. Today, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the 121st Psalm. I want to read to you this short song or psalm, and then I'll explain to you what my intention is in the coming weeks. It's titled, A Song of of Ascents, of Going Up, A Song of Ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I want to begin a new series with you today. And the intention is to choose some of these songs of ascent. The songs of ascent or the psalms of ascent are psalms 120 to 134. All of them include this title where they open with this introduction just as a song of ascents. And uh, no one really knows where the titles came from or who originally applied the titles or who made this into a particular collection of psalms. But the reason why they seem to be grouped together is because it The theologians reckon that these are the songs which um, the pilgrims or the believers would have said on the way going up to Jerusalem as they would go up to festal gatherings, you know, multiple times in the year, particularly on the great days like Passover. And as people would stream in from all the surrounding neighborhoods and then further afield into the regions and and the villages and towns outside, as they come up, they would have recited these particular psalms. So why then, just as a general sort of introduction to the series, why, are we, why have I selected these uh, as an opportunity to preach in the coming weeks? And the answer is to do with this idea of this coming up to worship. In a sense, what they do, I think these psalms do, is they kind of signal to our hearts the invitation and the summons to be a worshiping people. And just as you know, every year when um, you start to hear carols being broadcast across the sound systems and department stores and so on, increasingly early, you know, in September now, isn't it? But immediately it signals to you, doesn't it, a reminiscence of the experiences and of the memories and the smells and the, and the feelings that you encounter at Christmas. And all of those are brought to, back to mind, aren't they, every time that you hear these particular songs? And the same happens when we read certain portions of Scripture and would have happened for these original um, hearers and singers of these songs. That Upon singing these particular psalms, their hearts were kind of reminded of their identity as a worshipping people. And I want to, you to consider then the relevance of these particular songs. We've been through a season in which the churches 
and not just our church, but churches all across the nation and indeed internationally, are an experience of having been scattered and fractured through the experience of being spread abroad and not gathering as we normally would or in the way and the manner in which we normally would gather. And I, I don't think that I would be exaggerating in, in saying that this is nothing, has been nothing short of catastrophic for many, many churches and for many, many individual Christians. Just laying aside the rightness or wrongness of the restrictions that have been imposed on us. Just taking in isolation a consideration of what this is doing to churches and what it's doing to, Christi- to Christians. I do believe that catastrophic has, is a right description for many. And part of that comes from just listening to pastors and being aware of my own experiences in this year. There have been wonderful good things coming through. The grace of God that's evident this year. And you can see how the Holy Spirit's been at work in individuals' lives and and drawing people to faith who had no experience of Christ before. And so we we recognize God, the Spirit of God, blows wherever he wishes and does whatever work he wants. But are we also conscious of some of the things that have happened? And in my conversations with pastors, I'm I'm aware that there's been increased spiritual sickness in churches, um, that, that certainly this is true um, for many, especially those who are, who are single and alone, that there is a, a kind of, there is a particular battle that has been faced by many that has made them struggle in their faith. We're, we're aware also of division that's crept into church life. And um, although I felt it on multiple fronts, I'm conscious of it. When I talked to other pastors, and I was talking to a pastor this week, and he just said it's, it, you know, he's been through unbelievable turmoil in his church as a result of being through lockdown, not being together. And we've also seen, tragically, people falling away from God. We've seen friends who have wandered, who've kind of strayed, you know, and disconnected from the body of Christ, and ultimately, therefore, are kind of withering in terms of their spiritual life. And these things are complicated, I grant you, but I'm just laying the facts before you. And I don't think any of this ought to surprise us. Jesus called us to a rhythm as God's people of gathering, of singing, of hearing, of obeying, of responding. And all of this has been diminished, hasn't it? So I feel an urgency as we're moving into a season where we anticipate that the rules are going to change. And as our church that still remains in a situation of being scattered and there's only a portion of us who come on a Sunday... As we begin, again, the kind of road of coming back together, the pilgrimage of, or as it were, coming up to the hill to worship, I feel an urgency in, in, in addressing the kinds of themes that need to be addressed. Now, how do these particular psalms help the worshiper? They do in a number of ways. One is that they address the kind of spiritual and emotional conditions of heart that worshippers would have experienced throughout their having been scattered, right? So in the normal run of things, People are spread out. We experience this during the week, just between Sundays. But now for a prolonged period, we're spread out. And as a result, much of our life is lived at the coalface, as it were, in contention with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these things have a wearing effect upon us. You come to church every week, even in normal seasons, we come to church carrying wounds and and, and feeling, to some extent, battered and needing the healing grace and the balm of the Lord Jesus Christ to come and, and bind us up. And these psalms seem to have that kind of effect. You can imagine, can't you, the scattered worshippers coming together in all kinds of different spiritual conditions. And the psalms begin to speak to things like fear and guilt and dismay and hopelessness and discouragement or distraction. All these kinds of things are addressed And we're going to be able to touch on some of these themes. Another reason why I think these themes help us as worshippers is that they reassert the centrality of God in our lives. The church of God is like an orchestra in which every person has a, a place and creates a sound of worship to God. And this can be a beautiful, harmonious experience when our lives are lived in tune with the will and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's like the great conductor. When you're walking away from God, you, you sense that you're not in harmony with God's people. 
But when God's people are scattered, there's the effect of, of becoming out of time and out of tune with the will of God and our experience of being one people before him as worshippers. And I think that these psalms, they struck a note. They're like a tuning fork for the people of God that as they gathered to Jerusalem, as they ascended the hill to worship, their hearts were set to the living God, a reset to him. They were gravitating to him as a true north. And so the centrality of God and the, the lordship of Yahweh and the life of the believer was asserted and they were reminded of this reality. So their hearts were addressed, they were brought back to God. And another reason why these psalms are so potent is because they draw us together in the horizontal experiences of what it means to be God's people. Many of you are too young at this stage in your life to have been through experience of reunions with old friends, whether from old jobs or or schools or or, um, places where you grew up. But as you get older, those things become more poignant experiences when you see people that you haven't seen for years and friendship groups. And it reminds you of who you are, where you came from, maybe also of the purposes for which you're living. And there is that experience when God's people gather and they come back together that we reset to the experience of remembering who we are. When we're apart, when we're alone, when we're out in the world, there's a sense in which you can forget what and who you are. When you're back with God's people, there's a reminiscence of your identity in Christ. And that resets your purpose in life, directs you towards obedience and towards the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Psalms do this for us. The Scriptures do this for us. And these are the reasons why I think I'm excited to be opening them up and calling us to a remembrance of what and who we are before God. Well, what about this first psalm then? What's it about? What's it dealing with? I think that this particular psalm deals very honestly with the harsh realities and the dangers of life. You can imagine, can't you, that each Israelite spent most of their lives away from Jerusalem out in the provinces in an agrarian society and there were certain wearing effects of ordinary day-to-day life. There were these fears and anxieties that would encroach upon the heart, the, the sense that every day you're living on the edge, fending for yourself, wondering whether the crop will come through that year, wondering whether marauding bands of raiders might march through, the Philistines might emerge and come and steal away wives and children and crops and animals, whether, you know, there were all these kinds of experiences just living ordinary day-to-day life. And therefore, the ordinary person lived constantly on guard and wearied by the experience of being under threat And when they gathered together to worship, you can imagine that God's people coming together. There's a relief in being together, but they haven't fully cast off the sense of suspicion, the sense of fear, the sense of dread, which they carry with them as they come to church, as it were, as they come into the gathering of being with God's people. And this is a theme that's addressed in this particular psalm. It's this state of isolation and fear that can that can change our posture and change our demeanor and change our mindset and change our emotional state so that we're in a state of um, of kind of, of of heightened alertness and anxiety. And the psalm begins to speak comfort to the worshipper as they gather into God's house. And I want to show you how the psalmist does that. The first thing he does is he encourages you to confront the reality of fear. The first line, I lift up my eyes to the hills. It has a somewhat ambiguous sense when you first read it. It sounds poetic, doesn't it? It sounds like a poet dreamily gazing on the hills around Jerusalem. I lift up my eyes to the hills. And just sort of in a nostalgic or dreamy, wistful kind of frame of mind, looking at the surrounding hills. But this is not the intention, I do not believe, of what he is saying here. When you were in the holy city, perhaps you climbed the walls and you gazed out at the hills that surround Jerusalem. The hills were both a protection, a natural protection, but also the place where you were constantly alert to because it was the hills where you would see the danger, first of all. As an encroaching army might 
ascend the hill and rise and crest the top of the hills and you see the glint of the sun reflecting on shield and spear and armor as enemies might approach the gates. So when the worshiper lifts up their eyes to the hills, he's really confessing a state of alertness and fear and anxiety that's just an acknowledgement that life is full of threats and dangers. How does it speak to our situation? I think the reality of fear and dread in the life of all of us, I, I want to make the case in a moment, is something that can, can be a constant experience. That there are always things, as it were, that your eyes are always drawn to the hilltops. The, the awareness of risk and of danger and of, of threat in life. This is not a voluntary thing. I, know, I recognize that we're all wired slightly differently and some of us have more nervous constitutions and some of us are more stoic in our approach to life, even just by nature, just by your biology. And also your experiences in life feed and inform your responses to how you react to, um, to life and its various threats and dangers. But you don't choose to be this way. It just sort of is something that imposes itself upon you. I'd also say that this can be an all-consuming experience for some. There are many of us who are bound up, bound up in the fears and debilitating and paralyzing experiences of fear and anxiety that can really, really be a, a, a cause of restriction in the life of an individual and cause you to stop, not feel, experience freedom in life, liberty to do what God's called you to do, to be who he's called you to be. These, this is the experience that many go through. And I would also just add, by the way, that fears are a realistic thing. Because the reality is that we are profoundly vulnerable individuals. Each one of us, we are mortal. There is no, as in a sense, the sense of safety is often an illusion that many people buy into. Believing against the evidence. Fear ought to be... in for those especially who have no knowledge of God in their life, ought to be the constant sense that many experience. Now, I, I think having just opened up this subject, I think it's important just to recognize, though, that there are, there are different groupings of people, and I just want to acknowledge, too, that there are those among us who would acknowledge that fear is, is very much present in everyday, day-to-day -day life. It's something you're constantly aware of, something that you have occasionally confronted, something that you feel sensitive about if it's raised even in the context like this, and listening to me speak to you from God's word, that it heightens the remembrance of, of, of the things you've been through or of the experiences that, that you encounter in day-to-day -day life. And I want to acknowledge that. I also just want to say to you that I do not believe for a second that it is God's will that anyone remain in that state of mind and heart. I do not believe for a second that it's God's will. But I also recognize that most of us fall into a slightly different category here, which is to say that in most of our lives, we might be unaware of the fears that control us. And I say that partly speaking from personal experience. I would say that I largely had not put my finger on this in my own life for a very long time, and it's taken me in some ways, years to unfold some of the dynamics of heart, the ways in which I don't truly trust God or the ways in which I don't love others in such a way that it overcomes fear. A couple of things that alerted me to this reality, because I had this conception of, of anxiety and what an anxious person looks like that was very different from me. I don't have a nervous constitution. I'm not sort of on edge all the time. But I began to be aware that some of my behaviors and patterns and conduct were actually induced by deep-seated fears and anxieties that are right down deep in the heart. The ways that I might pull back from certain opportunities or might delay tackling certain um, work and responsibilities or my hesitation in certain situations. All of this are expressions of fear. I also went through experience a few years ago where I began to have these very bizarre, what I think are migraines, and, but the doctors don't really know. And the experience was very frightening, actually, and led from, to me on multiple occasions collapsing 
unconscious. And, but the doctor, whether they're right or not, just said perhaps one of the triggers here is a form of stress. And so even though I'm not aware of it, the reality is my body was telling me there are fears under the surface that I'm not fully in control of, I'm not even really aware of. And I began to realize, and I think this is fair, that all of us live our lives in some ways in response to the fears that control us. And I want to show you how that might be true of you. Do you ever experience stress? What is stress? Stress is fundamentally a response to fear. Are you ever competitive? Competitive people do not seem to be fearful, but competition in and of itself is often a response to fear, the fear of being outdone. Do you ever lose sleep? Unable to go to sleep at night or waking up too early and not refreshed. Sleep flees from the eyes of those who are anxious and fearful. There's no question. For some of you, there will be health issues that emerge in your lives because fear is a a controlling reality. You might not be conscious of it, but your body, as was the case with me, begins to tell you things are not right. Do you overwork? I don't think anybody chooses to overwork out of pure joy and delight. I think often there there are fears at the root of our overwork that drive us and compel us. The fear of what people think or the fear of failure or some other kind of fear. Do you find yourself being a controlling person? Wanting to control others, control your circumstances, control situations. Control is always a a response to fear. It's a manifestation of a desire to control your situation and circumstances so that what you fear does not come about. And controlling people always are acting in response to fear. Do you indulge in escapism? Escapism without question is always an escape from fear. Always. Behaviors that you know that you don't even necessarily like about yourself, where you can waste days and and hours in in a hole, just denying life. What's that? It's a response to fear, isn't it? Always. Do you have a tendency to get angry and not to be in control of your anger? Angry outbursts are always stimulated by and fed by the reality of fear lurking deep in the heart. Do you experience envy? They call it these days the fear of missing out, but the Bible just calls it envy. Envy is a fear. I think fear of missing out is a good way of encapsulating what envy is and what feeds envy. It's a fear. Are you timid? Withdrawn? Shy? inhibited. I think we could go on. But what I want to show you is this, that the reality of fear can be a controlling and powerful dynamic in all of our lives to a certain degree. We don't, in other words, we don't, we're not like Jesus. Not yet. Jesus is the only man who ever lived, who lived in perfect faith and perfect love. The Bible shows us that faith is in is an opposite to fear. It's the trust of God, the complete trust of God. Jesus is the only one who ever lived who trusted God entirely and completely and therefore had no fear. He's the only one who ever lived who loved God entirely and loved other humans perfectly. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. So again, these things are opposites. The degree to which you love often will be the thing which casts out fears in your life. But fear is an expression of a lack of love frequently. So I've concluded that Jesus is the only fearless one who's ever lived. And that all of us, to varying degrees and in different ways and in different manifestations, live with this sense that the psalmist is putting his finger on, I lift up my eyes to the hills. There's a certain amount of our conscious thought and our unconscious thought that is obsessed with and preoccupied with the reality of threat and of danger in our lives. And I think there's an urgency in addressing this. 
Not just because we're living now in a year in which fear has been fed constantly. And that has to affect us, doesn't it? Even if, you know, there's a swagger and you think, well, I'm not afraid of the virus. Nevertheless, the atmosphere of fear is a contagious thing. And then, of course, you add to that the fact that the normal remedies that God has given to us by his grace as ways of alleviating the fear of the human condition, those things have been taken away from us. And I think about laughter and feasting and friendship, that the experience is intimacy that's not through a screen. These are the normal ways in which the grace of God ministers to us in our vulnerability enables us to experience joy and lightness in life. And when you take these things away and the dark things begin to fester and grow. Take away worship. And we cannot remain healthy. I know that we sought to continue in worship, whether it's remotely or indeed by these sort of gatherings that we're doing in person and certainly better than nothing. But we're also aware that it's like a fire blanket, isn't it? Light resting upon us, inhibiting the expression of passionate love and adoration of God in the way that we want to worship him. And what happens when we're smothered by these things? The answer is, well, the dark things grow, don't they? And the fears grow. And we find ourselves in, in a position of being spiritually sick and not right. Not right at all. And you're bringing this with you as you come into God's presence or as you come to be with God's people. And I think the psalmist is therefore diagnosing this problem. Now let me show you what he does next. He then encourages us to examine our own reactions to fear. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, acknowledging that fear is a controlling reality. And then he asks this very pertinent question, from where does my help come? Now this question is a diagnostic A powerful question to get under the skin and into the heart of the believer. And I say that because what it does is it reveals the relationship between fear and worship that often takes the form of idolatry. Idols are always the result of fears. Now this is obviously true when you consider the situation in the ancient world in which this this song was composed. Think of all the ancient gods that we read of in the Bible, your Baals and your Asherahs and so on. All of these gods were an answer to a particular human fear. They were a way of answering this question, from where does my help come? So the ancient person might worry, for example, about fertility. Will I be able to have children to carry on my family name? The dignity of having children, of, leaving in, uh, of those who I can leave an inheritance to. It's not something we worry about in exactly the same way today. And so it's hard for us to understand fully, but that was a powerful fear in the ancient world where fertility was even more difficult, right? Children died in in infancy. And therefore, a God is made. A God of, of fertility is made. And you go and have sex in front of these poles and in front of these altars in the out in the countryside in order to make sure that you are guaranteed that your fear won't become a reality. Or what do you fear? You fear that the crops won't grow. They'll they'll have a famine this year. So what do you do? You worship a god of the harvest. You fear that conquering armies will come and, and, and kill you and your children and take away your lands and your animals and all these things, and so you worship gods of war. You see how all the idols of the ancient world were a correspondence or corresponded to the fears that people lived with, the things that were outside of human control. Now, just because we've managed to bring many of these things under control does not make us any less idolatrous in our day and age. We have different fears, but therefore we simply constructed different idols. I lift up my eyes to the hills, I'm afraid. From where does my help come? That's the question. And so in our day and age, if you fear, for example, what is it that that people define, you know, life is meaningful if your life is a success. So the great fear under it is is failure. And we make an idol of work and of success and all of these kinds of things. We construct an idol to address our fear. Or someone fears loneliness and isolation. 
something which is acutely becoming the case in our day and age. And of course, there's a one-in-one connection between that and the fact that people are more sort of sexually um, licentious or um, incontinent these days than they've ever been in history. And we ter- we've made a god of sex and of romance as a way of addressing the fear of isolation and loneliness. Or we have a fear of old age. And so we make a god of health and of beauty and of athleticism and of, of being gorgeous. <laughs> right? It's one of the things we worship in our day and age. Now, this is the question then. From where does my help come? And whatever your heart does to answer that question, whether you're aware of it or not, those are the things that we worship. Now, for the non-believer, for the person who is not a Christian, this is a, an extraordinarily important question for this reason, that life is absolutely vulnerable. That there are so few things within your control, and whatever you do have in your control, you only have in your control temporarily. Life is vulnerable. Sickness can come and take you. Oppression can squash you. There are all kinds of dangers that can threaten you. And you ask the question, from where does my help come? Who is looking out for me? And the answer is, if you're very honest with yourself, if you do not know God, the answer is nowhere. For no one. That ultimately there is no safety. There is no backstop. There is no safety net. If you're very honest with yourself, you might buy into an illusion of safety just temporarily, but it's not real. The things that you might look to are only limited, only finite things that only work temporarily for the short time that we are alive and healthy. But I also think this question has a direct pertinence to the life of the Christian. Because, listen, the reality is you can profess a faith in God where you say, my help comes from God. But your day-to-day life is controlled by other things. The fears that are at work in you cause you to run to other things. And so we can, we can turn other things into our life into the source of trust and security that we need. We can turn a spouse into an idol in that way. You can turn the entertainment in your life into an idol in that way. That whenever you're feeling stressed out or anxious, you turn to escape. You can turn work into an idol in that way. Even if you love Jesus, you still find that these things have a powerful controlling effect upon you. You can turn certain sins into an idol in your way. Or consumption, uncontrolled consumption, whether of material possessions or of food or of drink or some other thing. You can turn therapy into an idol seems to me to be one of the great idols that's, that's emerging in our current scene. That as a more and more we're confronted with the fear of ourselves and of self-actualization, of, of all the woundedness that we supposedly carry, therapy is becoming an idol as a way of addressing that. And so all these things can be powerful things. And I'm not saying that in and of themselves any of them are bad. What I'm saying is that they can become bad. The battle of the Christian life The urgent battle of the Christian life is the battle to enthrone God every day and every moment of every day. So that in all the ways that I described that fear can be at work in your heart, the corresponding answer, solution, medicine is a constant trust in the living God. The psalmist leads us here. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. It's very important, by the way, that he he speaks about God as the creator. He's saying, my help comes from the only one who is not created. Every other source of help is a created thing. God alone is uncreated. And friend, I think that growth in the Christian life is directly correlated with the degree to which you learn what it is to trust him in day-to-day life. The weak and the floundering Christian is the Christian who doesn't know what it is truly, functionally, in day-to-day life to trust God. The Christian growth into maturity is the experience of growing in your 
in your knowledge of his trustworthiness and of placing your faith into him. And it takes place in, in stages. I'd say that first of all, the kind of state of immaturity in the life of the believer is just the deliberate, conscious decision to trust him when you're falling into a state of fear or of anxiety. And you read passages like this, for example, in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul addresses this state of mind and heart, and he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you read that, and you say, well, I'm feeling the control of fear in my life. What does the Bible say? Okay, I need to turn to God in prayer. I need to deliberately come to him in supplication, which is to ask for things, and in thanksgiving, which is to become conscious of all the ways that God's been faithful up till now as a reminder so that I don't forget that he loves me. And as I pray and thank and pray and thank, I find that my fears diminish. So you read a passage like this, and at first, it's just a conscious act of the will. You say, I'm, I'm caught in a state of, of alertness and fear and anxiety. How do I deal with this? Well, the Bible tells me what to do. I need to make a habit of this. I need to come before God every day or multiple times in the day in order to consciously cast my burdens upon him. Which brings me to another passage which just reinforces this. Where in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter puts it in, it addresses the same issue. And he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the Christian, the first stage of maturity is just wanting to deliberately cast their, their anxieties on him. And they're learning the day-to-day what it means to say, okay, I'm conscious of this, 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 this malevolent lying thing going on in my heart and I'm going to bring it to God and I'm going to leave it there. But eventually, as you're growing into maturity, what you then discover is that this thing, this, this act of faith, this act of trust in God becomes more instinctive and habitual and even reflexive. You know, a reflex is what happens unconsciously upon a stimulus. And it seems to me that as a, as a believer grows in their confidence and their trust in God, that as soon as, as soon as something feels a threat to you, you instantly are, are turning back to God in prayer. You see this going on in Acts chapter 4. I love this story, how Peter and James, John are told not to, uh, to preach anymore in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they go back to the early church gathering in the kind of secret places where they gathered and they report back what they'd been told. Um, and, and as they reported back, it says, when they heard it, speaking of the whole church, what's the first thing they do? Instinctively, reflexively, habitually, it says, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. It's Psalm 121 being put into practice. My hope is the Lord who made heaven and earth. The early church, they hear of a threat, they turn to prayer. Because they've, they've learned this is how we deal with danger. We come to God, we cast our anxieties, we cast our fears, we cast our burdens upon him. And so as you're growing in maturity in the Christian life, it becomes less and less a conscious act of the will and more and more just like breathing. I must pray. If I don't pray, I suffocate. Our hope, of course, is to become like those great heroes of the faith who lived lives of faith, such as those described in Hebrews chapter 11. And he just, he just rounds it out when he's describing these great heroes. He says that they were people of whom the world was not worthy. You know, that's how precious God considers faith to be. When he sees trust in the life of the believer who is fearless in life, because of their unwavering confidence in the goodness and faithfulness of God, God's verdict of them is, they're saying, they're people of whom the world is not worthy. They're so distinct. So beautiful in their reliance and confidence and courage and trust in God. You want to see the results of that kind of faith in the life of a person? Go back and read that chapter. 
Read of people being sawn in two, he says, and those who give up worldly possessions in order to possess the treasures that come from God and turn away from worldly inheritance in order to inherit the city of God. You see all the ways in which they lived heroic, godly lives. And you say, why is it that they were so fearless? Why is it that they were those of whom the world is not worthy? Ah, Because they'd learned to put their faith in God. Friends, where the psalm leads us ultimately is to experiencing this security in him. And as you read on, after he said, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, as you read on through this psalm, the one truth that he keeps repeating again and again is this, that God is your keeper. He says in verse 3, You'll not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel. Verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. Verse 7, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Did you notice it the first time I read it? How he keeps saying this again and again. This is a declaration of faith in God. As your, this word keeper means your guardian. The one who watches over you to protect you. It's there in the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. You may be familiar with these words, but this is the way in which Aaron the high priest was called to bless the people of Israel repeatedly and constantly. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In other words, if this was the central way in which Aaron was called to bless God's people, what we're describing here when we're talking about God as your keeper is we're describing something definitive of the way God relates to his people. He is our keeper. It's almost a name of God. He's your keeper. It's true on a natural level. The Bible is telling us that God watches over every detail of our lives. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything that you're going through. He was sovereign over your family circumstances and the family that you ended up in and the experiences you went through. He's sovereign over the opportunities or lack of opportunities that you're facing in life. He's sovereign over your health or sickness. He's sovereign over who you are in your person, the way he's made you and wired you and constructed you. He's sovereign over all these things and he's watching you. He's your keeper. Jesus keeps reminding us of this. Numerous places in the Gospels, but I think particularly of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus had such a high view of the sovereignty of God over your situation. He said this. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Children. Isla. Please be quiet. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He said, even the birds in the trees, none of them die without God knowing. And then Jesus says this. He says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. We fear many things, don't we? And we want to take things into our control. We want to be assured that we will have the success and the joy and the health and the friendships and the prosperity in life that will give us fulfillment and happiness. And we want to control all these things. And the Bible says, no, no, no. Your father's in control of all of this. And he's numbered the hairs on your head. When a believer has a high sense of the sovereignty of the creator over them as God as keeper, you can know peace in the most dire circumstances and situations. When I was six years old, my dad was 36 at the time and he suffered a bout of acute pancreatitis that put him in hospital and then the surgery led to complications that nearly led to his death and then a six-month road to recovery. His body wasted away to what looked like skeletal form. He was a pastor like me at the time. 
Many people praying for him, but it was touch and go. And there were many moments there where we thought he was going to die. Now, I'm not sure that I had a complete appreciation of this at the time, though I was very, very aware that he was unwell. But I know the stories and of what we went through at that time and how we talk about the faithfulness of God. But one of the things that was so striking was that my dad, he had a strong view of the sovereignty of God. God is in control. If he wants to take me now with these three young boys, that's his decision. And it gave him a peace, not saying that he was totally unwavering in that, but it gave him a peace that allowed him to pass through that particular storm with dignity. And he would say to my mom this phrase, dignify the trial. When God's putting you through a trial and you think, why is this happening to me? And why are these situations outside of my control? And does God love me? Just as the psalmist said, he's your keeper. He's in control. He knows you. He knows your det- the details of your situation and circumstances. My dad would say this phrase, dignify the trial. It's not like God's lost control in this situation. He's watching how you respond and your trust and your faith in him in these particular moments. But friends, I want to show you as I close that as much as this is true in our day-to-day life and all the kinds of threats and challenges that we face and the trials that we go through in ordinary life, there's a greater sense in which I think this psalm speaks to us as God as our keeper. And it's like this. Consider this question with me. What is the greatest danger that we could ever face? And I think the answer is God himself. What is the greatest threat to your safety? It's God. And just before Jesus said to us that even the hairs of our head are all numbered, he said just before that, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This is a verse that my wife and I have reminded one another of many times in the course of this year as we've watched the world sink into fear. We should not be afraid of what can kill the body. There's a greater threat. There's the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. But the psalm speaks of what it is to be a believer and to know God as your friend rather than your foe. Let me just show you the ways in which I think it speaks to us in this way. He says that he'll not let your foot be moved because he who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The scriptures tell us that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the words of Hebrews chapter 7, is always making intercession for us. He is sleepless in his work of interceding on your behalf and praying for you and pleading his blood over you. He never sleeps. The psalm says, the Lord is your keeper. He's your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. And the New Testament speaks about the blood of Christ as a covering over us, a great shield from the wrath of God that would destroy us in our sin. And Christ is the one who absorbs the full weight of that wrath upon him. He's our shade from the heat of the sun and from the striking of the moon. The psalm says that the Lord will keep you from all evil. He'll keep your life. It's this picture of a God who is watching over you to guide your steps and to stop you from stumbling and falling down into evil paths of sin and temptation and wickedness. The New Testament tells us Christ is your shepherd. He's guiding you. His rod and his staff are there to comfort you. He's watching over you and protecting you. And the psalm closes by saying the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And this is why the Christian is a fearless person. Because we have an eternal hope. We're gifted with eternal life. What can threaten us at this point? What can we lose that God doesn't replace? In abundance and eternally. What can you miss out on in life? What emptiness does God not fill? Eternal life in the Bible is more than just the fact of living forever. It's an equality of existence. In fact, life in the Bible is almost a synonym with joy. 
To have eternal life is to have eternal happiness in the presence of God. And friends, if that's your inheritance as a Christian, what the heck are we afraid of? And this is ours in Christ. I want to invite you to bow your head with me. It may be the case that in the coming days, the Holy Spirit will start to bring to your attention the ways in which you have been in control, in the control of fear in your life. The call is to become like the psalmist, to be able to say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord turn to him I want to invite us to do that now let's pray together Father we are so aware of the distance between the things that we confess are true and our lived experience and the emotions that we go through on a day to day life and how so often Lord those two things seem to be disconnected and our prayer Lord is that more and more our our lives our emotions our confidence will come from conformity to who you are to what it really means to trust you and to place our faith in you and to know that you love us and I pray Lord Spirit of God bring liberty to your people today Pray for the spiritual sicknesses that have grown over the course of this year from our disconnection with one another and the inhibition of our worship toward you. I pray you'll come and do surgery to come and fix what's broken and to bring us back to a place of confidence in you, of joy-filled hope, saying, God is my keeper. I ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. Why don't you stand with me?